There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10 and branch microbiter. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Tonight, we have a really interesting show. And if you've been following the Alec Murdoch trial, who is on trial for killing his son, Paul, and his wife, Maggie. And it's really interesting because there's it's rare that a um, murder defendant, a homicide defendant, gets on the stand on his own behalf and requested, of course, the defense has to okay that. And his attorneys apparently okayed it or he put so much pressure on them to testify that they could not tell him no. However, it also could be a sign of desperation. Did his attorneys think that this case, this trial, was going poorly for the defense? And as such said, the only thing we can do now is to have you testify. And he's been on the stand. And whatever you think of Alec Murdoch, one thing that's very clear, he's a very intelligent man. He, in fact, is an attorney. But he comes across as the, a man that does have a drug problem. Is that you, you think that that's how he wants to come across? Because that's part of his defense that he was always high on uh, oxycodone, which was his drug of choice for apparently over 20 years. So he was addicted to prescription drugs, but he still somehow was able to practice law and somehow was able to steal $8 million or perhaps more than that without being caught for many, many years. So when we see him on the stand, First of all, we got to look at it as a bit unusual that a homicide defendant goes on the stand and testifies. However, in his testimony, he has been caught in so many lies that he has to basically admit that he's a pathological liar. So how does a jury react to that? How does a jury react to the fact that he has a real problem with the truth? Does that maybe convince them that he can't tell the truth about anything? And perhaps if he was capable of stealing $8 million and not just $8 million from his law firm, but from the plaintiffs of, of lawsuits that had scored big millions of dollars, and it's like stealing, taking candy from a baby, stealing the money from poor people who he had won huge judgments for in lawsuits. So that, is that the type of man that's sitting on the stand? And of course, the jury has to decide that. If he's capable of lying basically about everything, is he also capable of killing his wife, Maggie, and his son, Paul? That's what the jury's asked, going to be asked to do, to decide. However, big question, and we talk about it all the time on this show, B-A-R-D beyond a reasonable doubt, 
did the defense create doubt so that one, even one juror will vote not guilty and thus bring the case to a mistrial where it'll have to be tried all over again? Is that potentially, is that the possibility? And many, you know, we see many talking heads on TV. Many think he did a pretty damn good job of testifying. Others think, you know, you have the talking heads that are body language experts. They think, oh, he's lying. He's lying. And, yeah, it's easy to say, but you know something? You're not sitting on that jury. There's 12 other people sitting on that jury. So with me tonight to critique this, because I didn't trust my own knowledge and instincts to critique this as well as the person I'm bringing on tonight, and we have attorney and professor and retired NYPD sergeant Michael Geary, and uh, it's I'm so happy to have him on the show. Welcome to the show tonight, Mike. Billy, thank you for having me. You know, I told you uh, before we came on the air, Mike, you're going to be the star tonight because uh, look, you get all those books behind you, and yeah. for folks, for folks that are listening, Mike's got a a wall of books behind him, so you can't see. I'm going to tell him he's he's trying to impress us with his knowledge. So he's got all the knowledge in those books. Anyway, Mike, just give us a yes, a brief synopsis okay. on what you felt about Alec Murdoch's testimony. Um, I think given all that he was facing, the um, tremendous amount of uh, evidence, electronic evidence, uh, and this, the uh, which is, you know, uh, circumstantial evidence, but tremendously powerful because, you know, electronic evidence isn't uh, subject to people's passions or memory. It's just, you know, electronic devices recording, uh, you know, phone calls and uh, places where the phone has been moved to, geolocation sorts of things, geofencing kind of technology. Um, he's facing that. He's facing uh, all the information about the, his uh, law practice and the amount of people who he uh, fleeced out of millions of dollars over the years, all the people he lied to. Um, you know, all of the destructive things that have happened in his family over the last few years. I think he really didn't have much choice other than to testify. I think if he had not testified at all, um, it would have gone worse. It, you know, it, it makes the jury wonder, you know, if you claim that you're innocent, wouldn't an innocent man get up there on the stand and tell his story? So I think in his case, he really had to. It's a Hail Mary pass. It's a, you know, we're going to roll the dice this one time. But I think it was absolutely necessary that he did what he did. So then you agree that it was more almost a, a sign of desperation on the side of the defense that he he decided to testify. Yeah, I think in a very closely contested case where there was some, you know, where the, the evidence was there was no DNA evidence or there was no electronic evidence regarding phones and geolocations and things like that. In those sort of cases where, you know, it's circumstantial evidence, but it might be fairly weak circumstantial evidence. And, um, you know, like you might see in a case that may have uh, a homicide case that may have occurred, you know, years ago. And then 20 years later, they're f finally bringing the person to justice and people's memories are lost and documents are lost. And, you get a case like that um, where defense may poke a lot of holes in the prosecution's case. The defendant might feel comfortable enough to say, you know what? We think we did okay 
on our cross-examination of prosecution witnesses. We think we our objections were sustained. Um, we think we had a, a really good um, way of actually blunting the prosecution's case. Uh, we really, you know, maybe we'll call a witness or two to help us, but we're not going to put the principal defendant on the stand uh, because then that opens up a lot of avenues of attack that didn't exist for the prosecution if the defendant didn't take the stand. So in a way, it's kind of a, a tacit admission that uh, the case was very powerful and that maybe they didn't do as good a job as they thought they would do on defense. Definitely. Absolutely. You know, I just want to give a little bit of background to our listening audience. Now, the Murdoch family has been involved in South Carolina law in this town, Hampton, South Carolina, for over 100 years. The great-grandfather was the first solicitor general, which in most jurisdictions means the district attorney. Down in South Carolina, they call it the solicitor general. And then his grandfather took over, and he was, I think, the longest-serving uh, solicitor general or district attorney, uh, if you would, in United States history at that time. And then the family branched out and had this most powerful of law firms. So they know where all the bodies are buried in that area of South Carolina. They're very powerful. They represented people. It's a small community. And the, the, the town and the neighborhood fears them. And that can be uh, shown by people who are very reluctant to talk about that family. So in July 8th, 2015, a, a gentleman named Stephen Smith was killed in a hit-and-run accident uh, along the side of the road near the Murdoch uh, dog kennel, actually, not so far away from that. And the Murdoch family was mentioned as potentially um, suspects in this hit-and-run, which uh, they always considered a potentially could be a murder. On in February 2018, the Murdoch's housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield, somehow fell down the stairs in the Murdoch household and sustained grave injuries that uh, eventually would result in her death. She died on February 26, 2018. Uh, a multi-million dollar lawsuit was filed for wrongful death and the family was awarded, I think her two surviving sons were awarded over $4 million, which Alec Murdoch stole that money. The, the two sons never saw any of that money. In 20, um, 2019, Paul Murdoch was involved in a boating accident uh, on 224-19, where he was intoxicated and there was... Uh, about four or five people on the boat, maybe even six. And a 19-year-old girl named Mallory Beach was ejected from the boat, wound up in the water. He hit a bridge abutment, and they didn't find her body for five days. So even though clearly on that night, Paul Murdoch was intoxicated, he was never arrested, and he was, was never required. Uh, well, he was arrested subsequently, but... He was never required to spend the night in jail, thus shows the power of the Murdoch family. Alec Murdoch showed up at the hospital and spoke to all the surviving witnesses from the boat accident and told them not to talk to the police, not to talk to, 
to SLED, South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. Then we fast forward to June 7th, 2021. And that is the day that Maggie Murdoch and Paul Murdoch were shot to death on the family's property, the dog kennel property, a hunting lodge. Uh, Paul with a shotgun and Maggie was killed with a rifle. And that is the fast forward we get to. That is what Alec Murdoch is on trial for, the murder of his son and his wife. Now, the, the prosecution, of course, is building a case based on the fact that if he can do all these other criminal acts, then he's totally capable of this murder. And what the fear is with the prosecution, again, that one juror, you know, one of the jurors was seen crying. You know, a couple of the jurors seem sympathetic to Alec Murdoch. So that is what we're talking about, Mike. That one, that the beyond the reasonable doubt, that one doubt, one or two jurors maybe that has that doubt that will refuse to uh, vote guilty. Yeah, the uh, that is an issue for for in our uh, in our system of law with the prosecution having to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a very high standard, the highest standard we have in our criminal justice system, uh, and. So you have to convince uh, a unanimous jury. So that's 12 in this particular case. Now, the defense has a different you know, uh, type of uh, goal. Their goal is to convince uh, at least one and maybe more uh, jurors, not that the person is completely innocent, like you know the driven snow, but just that there is some reasonable doubt as to whether or not the person is actually guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And occasionally you'll have jurors who will say, yeah, they'll vote to acquit someone. You know, they'll vote not guilty. And they'll say, well, I kind of thought the person was guilty, but they didn't prove it enough. And that drives prosecutors crazy. You know, this is part of the of the of the, of the game, if you want it, the type of criminal justice system we have when it comes to trials. And um, so you've got these two conflicting goals. And in this case, um, the defense is just trying to convince, convince at least one person. And I think that, you know, uh, Murdoch getting up on the stand is a tacit admission that, you know, it's not going well for him in terms of all the amount of uh, incriminating evidence that's coming against him. He has to do this. Um, he has to take a shot, see if he can convince someone on a personal level, just get there and talk about. Uh, Mags and Bubba and, um, you know, Paw Paw and the, the pet names he used, just to try to get a little bit, one ounce of sympathy from these people. And, and that's his goal. Um, whether or not he's successful, we don't know, but uh, that's, that, that's the goal that he has to try to accomplish. And um, depending on your view of things, maybe he has accomplished that, maybe not. I don't believe that the defense thinks that they'll get an O.J. Simpson sort of jury that's going to set him free where all 12 actually uh, vote to acquit him completely of all the charges. I think he really knows that the best he can do is to try to convince one or two and get a hung jury and, you know, try it all over again in the future. 
but perhaps may get some sort of plea bargain, a favorable plea bargain arrangement. I think that's where they're at at this point. All right, Mike, let's watch a little bit of his uh, of his testimony. I'm going to put this on the screen. I'm going to play a little bit of this. Thank you. Good morning. Day number 24, cross-examination. You may proceed. May I please court? Good morning, Mr. Waters. All right, let's see if uh, we can uh, move forward with this a little bit. Um, see if we can go back to some things we may be able to agree on. All right, sir. All right. Uh, first thing is, is that the money you were stealing in addition to your income and the money you were borrowing was not just to pay for drugs. Would you agree with that? Sure. All right. And would you agree that your stealing in addition to the money you were borrowing increased over the years as we moved towards June of 2021? Repeat that, please, sir. Sure. Would you agree that your stealing increased over the years as we move towards June of 2021. Yes, sir. All right. And would you admit that your stealing increased in particular after the boat wreck? Uh, no, sir. I don't agree with that. You don't agree with that. I think I continued to do it, but I, I, I don't as I sit here today, I, I I don't think I took more money that I should not have taken after the boat wreck than I did before the boat wreck. But again, the, those documents speak for themselves, Mr. Waters, and if that's the case, then that's the case. But as we sit here, I, I, I think that I probably wrongly took from clients and people that trusted me more as much money before that boat wreck as after. All right. And I'm just, trying, I'm just trying to get through this so we don't get bogged down like we did yesterday. All right. Uh, I understand. All right. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't agree with me that in 2019 alone, you stole about $3.7 million. No, I, th I think that's correct. All right. And you would, would you agree with me though, that that figure in 2019 was generally higher than any other year that you've been stealing since 2011? In any year, sure, I'd agree with that. Okay. I thought you were talking about overall the whole, you know, the whole cycle. But right. yeah, I, I I would agree that in 2019, I stole more money than any other year. I find this Mike to be amazing. <laughs> I really do. It's like it is amazing. this is this is obviously his defense, and his defense has to be. To admit to, well, grand larceny first degree, it's the highest. He stole millions. He stole right. millions. And he admits to lying. Uh, you know, I just want to say, Snug with Pug, thank you so much for the 1499 super sticker. Very much appreciated. Thank you so much for your support. Um, so it, it's amazing that, and obviously his attorneys agreed to this. You're going to have to admit 
that you stole all this money and that you lie like, you know, the thief from Baghdad. And you can't, you got to give that up because you're facing a double murder charge. That's what we're really concerned with. This other stuff, even though you stole millions, it's penny ante stuff compared to the murder. Right. That's why defendants rarely take the stand in their own defense. Anytime a witness, either for the prosecution, but mostly you're worried about for the defense. We're really concerned about the defense in this case. Anytime a witness takes the stand um, to testify, they their credibility is subject to attack. But there's all, there's certain parameters and things like that. Uh, past criminal conduct in, ter- in terms of convictions, uh, that is uh, fodder to be examined because that goes to the credibility. If you're stealing, if you've been caught lying, if you're convicted of a crime, violent crime, property crime, it doesn't matter. Conviction is a conviction. could be DWI. You, if the prosecution brings it up, you're going to have to admit to it. And so in this point, I think in the video, I think the, the, the prosecutor wasn't as sharp and direct as a New York prosecutor would be. A New York prosecutor or a New York, say, for instance, defense attorney on cross would would tear the witness apart a little bit more, be a little bit more uh, direct. And it was amazing that he kind of said, wouldn't you agree, rather than say, you stole this money right. And this way he wouldn't be able to explain. But he's like, wouldn't you agree? Perhaps it's a cultural difference between New York and South Carolina. But I think it was actually kind of effective because Murdoch was kind of able, in, rather than just say yes, he actually said, uh, yeah, and then he started to talk. And the more he talked, the more it seemed that he was actually digging the hole for himself. Um, so in a weird, in a way, that's not a New York way, but I guess a South Carolina way, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more genteel. Um, the prosecutor gave him enough rope and Murdoch is hanging himself, but this is desperate times for Murdoch. He's got oh, to but do Mike, this. You know, one of the amazing things is that most prosecutors will let the person who's testifying, whether it's the defendant or not, give yes or no answers. Right. Mm-hmm. And they don't let him go into paragraphs and to extrapolate and, and right. to just tell long stories, but they did in this case. Yeah. That's and that was a little bit amazing to me. Yeah. And you know what? I was, I was kind of uh, surprised the way he did it, but the, the more I listened to it when, you know, doing research for this, for the, uh, to- for the topic tonight, the more it seemed in, in a weird, in a weird way to a New Yorker seemed very effective because Murdoch didn't do himself any favors, you know, a New York defendant, Given the ability on a cross examination question, is not used to being able to actually talk other than saying yes or no. And the fact that he was given the ability to talk a little bit, strangely, it made it, I think it made it worse for him. And uh, it, it's just, it's, it, it, may, it just stretches incredul- incredibility uh, for uh, a person to say, Wow, you know, he did himself a favor. I don't think he did himself a favor getting on the witness stand. He had to, but it, this is a desperate last minute Hail Mary, you know, pass, you know, two seconds left on the clock. You, you know, you're taking a shot from half court in the basketball game. You know, you're just throwing it up there, praying. You know, well, they're, they're clearly, and I'm going to go back to the video, they're clearly building the foundation uh, to show what he's like. Yeah. To, to say to the jury, this is a man 
who was desperate. And he, yes, he was capable of yeah. killing his son and his wife. And we think he did kill his son and his wife. That's right. Would you agree with me that from 2015 on, your legitimate income, while still very strong, was diminishing as a general matter? <clears throat> Well, I think whatever my income is speaks for itself. But as a general rule, a plaintiff's lawyer doing what we do, income ebbs and flows. Some You have some really good years. You have some really lean years. And no, I, I think I had some I think I had some good years, maybe not the, you know, four and five million dollar years. But I think I had some two and three million dollar years in there and. And my caseload was such that, you know, I had one of the things I was working on that Monday was one of the biggest cases that I've ever been involved in. Talking about the Dominion case, right? Yes, sir. Right. And so, you know, I think it was cyclical. I think it. So I don't. I don't. Without looking at the record specifically, mm. I, I I I don't necessarily agree with that. Okay. So you don't remember then. No, I do remember. I, I, I don't think I agree with that. But again, those records will speak for themselves. Um, okay. All right. So would you agree with me that in 2014, uh, your reported income was over a million dollars? Objections overruled. Reported income, like tax-wise or reported... Yeah. I assume you have a document that says that, and if you're reading that from a document, I don't dispute it. I mean, I'm happy to show it to you if you like. I trust you, Mr. Waters. So. All right, I appreciate that. When does a lawyer ever trust another lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I, that's what was bizarre to me, too, as well as the amount of testimony, like as he's, he's allowed to say things and tell long stories. And, Mike, there's another rule in prosecution and among attorneys is never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. Isn't that That's true? Right. That's right, because you don't want to get caught flat-footed. You don't ask questions. When I'm preparing direct examination questions or cross-examination questions, especially cross-examination questions, you know, I, I'm writing out the question. I'm writing out the expected answer. And I'll say the answer is going to be yes or no. If not, then I put an arrow and I have this follow-up question, you know, that sort of thing. Every once in a while, you'll get a boomerang come right at your head and hit you in the head. But uh, strangely, I, I, I think that um, the prosecutor was not getting really rigid and saying yes or no, answer the question like you would see in a New York courtroom. And I think it, it uh, kind of allowed Murdoch to, you know, not improve by uh, an answer by uh, wandering around and talking, it seemed like, well, sir, I'm not, yeah, I'll, um, I'll go along with that kind of like kind of thing. He didn't raise his voice. He didn't uh, get testy at all. Um, but I think that uh, it uh, amazingly, I think it actually kind of works in that it worked in that situation to allow him to just give these really, long-winded answers. Well, I think, you know, in one way, he was trying to show that he's a nice guy. Yeah. You know, I'm a nice guy who steals millions of dollars, but I'm a nice guy. 
Right. And I'm, yeah. I'm not capable. I, I steal and I lie and I cheat, right. but I'm not capable of killing my wife and my son. That's and right. the prosecutor is building the foundation to say, yes, you are. And I, I when I watched even more of the testimony, the prosecutor must have named about, I don't know, 30 to 50 names. Oh, my goodness. Of people that he had lied to yeah. in his in his business career, in his law career, and in his his, his interactions with people, in law enforcement. And after a while, it was like, all right, all right, we get it. He's a liar. <laughs> he lied and to everybody. He lied to everybody. But right. then he's on a stand and he's come, trying to come across. Now, this what I want to play next. This is about the dog kennel. Okay. And Mike, just talk about that for a second because I know he told a huge, huge lie to the police mm-hmm. that he now he had to live with this lie. And this is what, if I was sitting on the jury, would tell me, wow, he did it. He did it. If he lied about that, you know, he 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 did it. You know, go ahead, Mike. Oh, the uh, with the with the dog kennel. Yeah, he um, at one point he said that he told uh, Sled, uh, South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, who were in charge of, because it was a homicide. The local agency, the local county, did not really do the investigation. They were there in the very beginning, but everything was turned over to Sled. Um, he told Sled investigators that. Um, he, he was not there uh, at earlier in the evening that and that he did not come across Maggie or, or, or his son, Paul, at all. And uh, he was off doing errands, uh, taking a nap. I think one of the things he did, uh, visiting his father, um, you know, conducting some business, going around and that. And then he just happened to get there like 1030, something like that, late at night. And then that's when he found the bodies. Um, he and then the problem is uh, he did not realize that um, his son had the uh, video going and his wife's uh, phone had like a geo tracker. It's like like find my best friend kind of uh, uh, app or something on the phone. He didn't know these things. And so when he was when it turned out that, you know, in discovery um, through the prosecutor d- doing a discovery dump to the defense, that, oh my goodness, there's going to be testimony about this. He had to try to come up with some sort of excuse. And so then he, uh, when he got up and to testify, he absolutely had to admit that for a year and a half, he had lied to investigators on numerous occasions. Every single investigator he talked to, he lied to. He lied to his family. He lied to his sister-in-law. He lied to his brother. He lied to um, everyone who he talked to about about this particular uh, episode, not about the stealing. But he, he did plenty of lying with that. But in this particular case, he had to admit to, to uh, lying to everyone. And then he made up a really long-winded uh, excuse that he drove there earlier. He didn't see them. He then took off and then he came back. And when he was there a second time, that's when he found discovered the bodies and at the kennel. And then he called 911. Um, it was, uh, and, and actually it was quite kind of effective because the, 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 in terms of what the prosecutor did, because, um, you know, the prosecutor sitting there, he's got all this information. He's had it for, you know, for two years now, and he's just waiting for, uh, you know, um, uh, Murdoch to get up on the stand. And, uh, he, he actually said to him at one point, um, so you're like, you basically, you cook this all up within the last like, you know, 48 hours figuring what am I going to do uh, to um, to come up with an excuse to cover 
the not my original story, but to actually answer each and every lie that the geofencing and the uh, cell phone data reveals. And so um, quite effective, I thought, for the prosecutor. Um, you know, Mike, I just I'm going to go to the video of uh, him talking about the kennel. But first, let me okay. just uh, speak to the audience for a second. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell if you like real crime podcast from a police perspective, you're in the right place. And if you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel membership with count them, five different levels. And you see the folks in the green font. They're part of our YouTube channel membership family. And we appreciate all our friends, fans, subscribers, and they're getting, getting real crime from a police perspective. Now, I want to go and play this because this was uh, what Mike was just talking about a little while ago. Chicken. And I take the chicken from Bubba. He came up by the golf cart. He came up to Maggie and I, which I was on the golf cart. She's by the golf cart. I mean, he's not coming to the golf cart, but he's coming to us. Is this during the kennel video or is this after the kennel video? Well, no, you hear Maggie say he's got a chicken. That's what she's talking about is Bubba caught a chicken. All right. All right. So is the kennel video still going on before you go get the chicken? I mean, you've heard it, correct? You've heard it in this courtroom. I don't know exactly. Um, I don't know exactly, but in close time into Bubba coming out of those woods with the chicken, I got up and took the chicken from him. Okay. Let me ask you this. Were the dogs barking and carrying on or going out into the woods or acting like they sensed somebody was around that they didn't know. Recordings just got better. Hey, it's Dana from. Sorry, folks. I should, I should have let that commercial run through, but uh, it's not benefiting us. I'll, I'll play it out. So and we'll excited go back. to announce that local recordings are now available on StreamYard. Okay. Were the dogs acting like there was somebody around that they didn't know? Yeah, like dogs do. No, the, no, they the, weren't. There was nobody. There was around that the dogs didn't know. Okay. Dogs didn't didn't, to your indication, sense anything out of the ordinary. They were just chasing after the guinea. There was nobody else around. All right. Good for them to to, to sense. You've heard the kennel video. Would you agree with me that it lasts for about 50 seconds? I, I agree with that. So it would have ended around 8.45 and 45 seconds. Would you agree with that? I do agree with that. Did you have the chicken out of Bubba's mouth at the end of the kennel video, or did it take longer than that? You know, I can't remember exactly when in the video he came up up with the chicken, but I would have had to I would have had the chicken out of his mouth within 10 15 seconds of of maggie saying he's got a chicken all right and so then what did you do i put the chicken up all right how long did that take did you get out of the golf cart to do that i did all right and you had to go walk to where it was well yeah i mean it 
few feet, but I, I, I did that, yes. All right, so how long did that take? I mean, seconds. We're, we're at 8.46 now. How long did that take? Seconds. Just seconds? All right. And what did you do after that? Got back on the golf cart. Mm -hmm. And what did you do after that? I left. You left. Now, Just did jumped I on the golf cart and left. Well, that's what I was getting ready to say. Did I get on the golf cart and leave that second? Probably not. But did I get on the golf cart and leave very quickly after that? I did. Okay, yeah, I think you testified yesterday. I got out of there. I did. Why'd you get out of there so quick, Mr. Murdoch? Because it was chaotic, it was hot, and I was getting ready to do exactly what I didn't want to do. You are getting ready to do what you didn't want to do. That's correct. Yeah. I was getting ready to sweat. I was getting ready to work. I went back to the air conditioner. So did you say goodbye according to your new story? Did I say goodbye? Yeah. Did you talk to them at all or did you just get the chicken, put it on there, jump on there and oh, just no. take off? I wouldn't have just gone off. I mean, I would have said I'm leaving. Okay. Did I say goodbye or bye? And again, go but, ahead. I mean, there would have been some... You know, there, there would have been some exchange. I'm not staying here. Well, what was that exchange? I mean, you have, you've had such a photographic memory about these new stories. What, 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 what happened here? It's not. I can't tell you the exact words. You don't remember your conversation after you put that chicken up. Did y'all talk about the chicken? No, I don't think we did. Did you talk with Paul about Cash's tail? After the chicken? Yeah. No, I, I know I didn't do that. Did you tell Maggie I'm going to go check on him? At that point, no, I don't. I did don't you think tell I did. Maggie, oh, it's hot out here. Think I'll go back? I, I certainly would have said something to that effect. All right. So, unlike everything else with the new story, you just can't recall what, what that would have been. Well, you know, I mean, you're making that categorization. I think there's other things about that that I can't remember. But if the question is, can I remember exactly what words I used when I gave Maggie some uh, salutation when I'm leaving, I can't tell you what those were. All right. But it would have been something to the effect of, I'm leaving. All right. Okay. Well, you would concede that there was at least some conversation, that you wouldn't have just put the chicken on there and jumped, ran back to the golf cart and taken off. Correct. Without talking to Maggie, I would have never done that. All right. All right. So, Will, let's, uh, you want to say a minute? Does that sound about right? A minute for what? To have just whatever interaction it took for you to then, according to your new story, drop back to. No, sir. It, it wouldn't have taken me a minute. It would have been, it would have said, it would have been, I'm leaving. I'll see you in a minute. Okay. So, 30 seconds. I don't think it would have taken 30 seconds, but I mean, I'm fine with you using whatever time you want to apply. Well, but I don't I'm think just it asking about real life here and, and how people interact with one another, uh, Mr. Murdoch. I mean, so what you're telling this jury, I call you're fuzzy on these kind of details, is that you jetted down there, you dealt with the chicken, and jetted right back. No, no sir. No, sir. I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't jet down there, and I didn't jet back. I got up after Maggie asked me to leave, after Maggie asked me to go with her, and I didn't. I got up. I went and got on a golf cart. I drove down there. I did what I did. I said I'm leaving or something to those words, and I went back. All right.
Well, if it's about 846, if the kennel video ends at 845 and 45 seconds, and it's about 846, we at least can see that maybe it was about a minute before you got on that golf cart and headed back. Just reasonable real life. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was that long, but maybe, sure. All right, so. But I don't think it was that long. I mean, right, well, exactly what I thought was going to be going on at that kennel, why I didn't want to go there to begin with, is yeah. exactly what was going on. Yeah, well, I get that. I get and I left. Are these also convenient facts in your new story that have to fit with the timeline now that that evidence has been thrown in your face? No, sir. Does that sound like real life to you that you jet down there and jet back, Mr. Murdoch? Mr. Waters, as I just told you, I didn't get on my golf cart and jet down there. I didn't jet back. The reason why you have to be so fuzzy Waters, about these details. Mr. Waters, hang on. Just answer before we, another question is presented. Yes, I'm, sir. I'm answering your question. Are you responding to the last question? Yes, sir. I'm responding to your question, and, and, and you're using words that I'm not using. And, and, and I'm, that's your categorization. Do you agree I'm entitled to ask my questions to you, sir? Absolutely. Okay. And I'm going to answer them. All I'm saying is I'm, I'm taking issue with the manner in which you're changing what I'm saying. So you disagree this is a new story? You disagree with that characterization? Yes. This, this is the first time that this is being told openly. And you disagree to my characterization that you've got a photographic memory about the details that have to fit now that you know the, these facts, but you're fuzzy on the other stuff that complicates that. You disagree with that? I do disagree with that. I, I, I think that I, I think that I have a good memory about a lot of things on this. How about this? So, Mike, what do you think? Um, at this point, I think the uh, prosecutor, uh, you know, in a weird way, uh, it wasn't a, a good section. Um, I think he was trying to really, you know, pin. Uh, Mr. Murdoch down to a, a specific timeline because uh, the timeline has already been established by, um, you know, uh, electronic evidence and that he didn't even know about existed until the beginning of the trial. And so that's why he kept saying, you know, in this new story. And then at the end, he got a little testy and he said, you know, the new story that, you know, fits the timeline because it was thrown in your face at the trial. Um, he allowed and maybe that's just a cultural thing. He allowed uh, Murdoch to, to ramble on and, and disagree and stuff like that. In, in the New York courtroom, uh, the prosecutor would would not have let him speak other than and I've you you it's happened to you. It's happened to me when you're testifying at a homicide or some sort of violent crime and you want to explain something. And the defense is like, you know, no, you got to answer the question. Yes or no. And, and that's it. And the, and the prosecutor will just sit there and there's nothing they can do about it. You know, um, so there are times when you sit there and you're like in looking at this saying, yeah, this is something that wouldn't happen in a New York courtroom. But that maybe that's just the way it's done. I don't think the prosecutor, this was a really good section of cross-examination. I thought the prosecutor did a great job overall. But this part, you kind of end up in the weeds and going down little rabbit holes. But he's trying to get him pinned down.
But the problem is he's he's allowing Murdaugh to kind of keep shifting around. And it wasn't the best section of cross-examination. That's for sure. You know, Mike, I think that when you allow a witness to tell long stories, it gives the advantage to the witness and yes, takes takes the power away from the prosecutor and the, the person asking the questions because you don't want long dialogue. You want the person to answer the question. That's part of the technique of a good prosecutor is to ask almost rapid-fire questions leading to what their overall point of view is, what they're trying to get out of the witness. But when you let the witness, for a perfect example, and a lot of this, if you watched a lot of this trial, uh, Alec Murdoch many times repeats the question. Mm -hmm. And in my experience as a homicide investigator interviewing people, when someone repeats the question you ask them, that is usually a sign of deception. Mm -hmm that they're trying to think of what to say because they don't want to just blurt out something that may get them in, in hot water. So that's, uh, to me, a sign of deception. Kimberly Clays, thank you so much for the $5 super sticker. Very much appreciated. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, let me just play a little bit more of this. And just to see his technique as a witness, he, we all have to understand he's an attorney. He knows this game. He knows how to do it. And as such, I think he's giving really a truly good performance because he's trying to elicit sympathy, I think, from the jury. Mm -hmm. Oh, woe is me. I'm a good guy. I would never do this. And, you know, and later, a little later, we'll get to his drug addiction. But I think even in that, there's a lot of lies told. He was saying he was taking 60. Oxy, uh, oxycodone uh, pills per day. I don't really think that that's a po I think that would kill a horse if you were taking 60, 60 oxycodone pills per day. And right. it doesn't seem like he was questioned about it. 60, I mean, and he said there were 30 milligrams. I When I looked it up, and I'm no expert on pharmaceuticals, they don't even make 30 milligrams uh, unless that's a secret South Carolina recipe that they make. I don't know, but to take, he wasn't taking 60 pills a day. I mean, he, I'm sure he was taking a lot, but not 60 a day. Um, Melanie M, thank you for the $5 super sticker. Did you hear the part where Alex had a badge and blue lights in the Suburban that was a law firm vehicle? Absolutely. Look, we opened up the show by saying how powerful the Murdoch family was and is going back 100 years. They had power. That's why also the police, the local police, you notice who's investigating this, SLED, South, South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, because could we really trust the local police to do a thorough investigation on the Murdoch family? I think it's really tough to do that. So, yeah, that's we, we recognize this. And look, we uh, all of us sitting in different spaces, uh, spots in the world right now, we can't imagine the power and the influence that this law firm had in this small little town of Hampton, South Carolina, going back 100 years. Power, money, you know, lawyers can destroy people just by exhausting them and corporations and businesses. So 
That's why when people in that area of South Carolina ask questions about the Murdoch family, they like, uh, I'll answer it, but don't put me on record. Don't mention my name. Mike, thoughts? Yeah, they are, you know, you're dealing almost with a, with a, uh, like an organized crime family. They had been in power for so long, as you mentioned, they know where all the bodies are buried. And they're not only uh, are they uh, a gang, but they own the local police department and uh, the county police department in a way. And there's a lot of people who, uh, as we know, from the investigation done into the boating accident where Paul was, uh, you know, uh, negligent, uh, reckless, absolutely reckless that night uh, and drunk, um, that that uh, some of the cops investigating the uh, accident uh, had been had been repeatedly phoned over the course of months uh, Alec Murdoch to let him uh, to let him know what the uh, you know, investigation, what the status of the investigation was, uh, those phone records exist. And you're sitting there going, you know, they had, they had the police in their hip pocket. They bought, they had, they had them bought and sold. And uh, that's a scary thought because if you're an individual person, uh, a middle-class person, you don't have the type of political power. You don't have the type of economic power. You don't have that type of uh, power at all. And you're facing this juggernaut uh, of a, of a family with um, you know resources, not only civil but also criminal resources, you don't dare cross them. You're 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 going to pay. Absolutely. A number of items. Most most importantly, how strong the pill was. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about. Let's say start maybe in January of 2021 and move forward. Can you describe to the jury what your daily pill intake was like? I think at that time, most of what I was purchasing was 30 uh, milligram pills, um, instant release, oxycodone. Um, they were probably mixed in with some oxycontin, which is made of oxycodone. It's just time release. Um, I would have been taking Um, anywhere from fifteen uh, hundred milligrams, maybe, to um, maybe maybe a, a, a thousand or, or maybe a thousand milligrams of or 1200 milligrams on a day I didn't take as much or didn't have as much up to, I mean, there are days, many days, a lot of days, most days were more than that. And many days would be, you know, 20, more than 2000 milligrams a day. And how many pills is that? It, it depends on the strength. Well, let's say it's the 30s the that you just mentioned. If I took 30, if, if, if I had 30 milligram pills, you, you figure 100 pills would be 3,000 milligrams. Okay. 100? 100. So you're taking 60 a day or something like that? I mean, there I, were days where I took more than that. There were days I took less than that. And how would you take them during the course of the day? 
I mean, how many are you taking at one time? How frequent in this time period, let's say January to June? You know, there's a point in time, and I'm not sure when it was. I think it was well before that where, and you have to understand this. This is something that I didn't, I mean, I can still remember the first time I ever took an oxy. Mr. Murdoch, can I ask you to answer my question and I'll let you explain all you want. See, that's what we're talking about. That's amazing. These long, long stories and probably the jury. Oh, let's hear the story. You know, right. It's this is fascinating. This millionaire drug drug addict that's stealing millions of dollars is dressed in a, a jacket. It looks like that I can't afford, you know, and uh, is a wealthy guy sitting on the stand. And did he kill us? He did all of these things. He's taken. I mean, I don't know if it's possible to take 60, 30 milligram pills per day and, and live. I don't know. What do you think, Mike? I, listening to this, I'm thinking he, he, he might have taken 30 pills occasionally, but I am not sure that he was taking uh, oxycodone, uh, you know, that sort of thing. He might have, his supplier might have been giving him aspirin, might have been giving him children's Tylenol, you know, uh, you know, that sort of thing. You know, those, those little pills that you give to like a, a really little kid that tastes like candy. Who knows exactly what he was taking? Um, I think if he if everything that he took was oxycodone, um, you could kill a brontosaurus rex with that level. That is insane. <laughs> you know that that's crazy. So I'm not so sure if he wasn't been if he wasn't given uh, really basically like aspirin. You know, half the time. Yeah, well, if if he was buying them off the street or from yeah. a local drug dealer, you're right. You don't know what the hell I'm was wondering. in there. That's what I'm wondering. Uh, and. Valerie Service, thank you so much for the 499 super sticker. Very much appreciated. A lot of folks, even in the chat, are, are saying, you know, that doesn't sound right. That yeah. that amount of drugs sounds like it would kill you, you know. And like we recognize the fact that for 20 years he's been abusing drugs. Sure. And that's part of his defense here. Mm-hmm. That he's not remembering, he's fuzzy, he's this and that. He stole money. That's part of his. I mean, what what could these pills possibly cost that wouldn't be covered by eight million dollars? What was he doing with the rest of that money? Uh, and again, the most important thing isn't the money he stole. Is that the thing he's being charged with is killing his wife and his son, and all of this other stuff may be a smokescreen, at least from the defense point of view to make everyone forget about, wait a minute, he's on trial for killing his wife and his son violently. His son shot twice with a shotgun, blew his head basically clear off. Right. His wife with a very powerful rifle, and she was shot multiple times. That's what he's on trial for. This guy in front of you who, yeah, maybe looked like a junkie in a suit, but he's an intelligent junkie in a suit, and he he's being tried for killing his wife and his son. And here's the evidence. Are they proving it, Mike? I think so. And um, going back to the very first video that we saw tonight, um, where there was a little tete-a-tete between the prosecutor on cross and and uh, Murdoch, um, the, the prosecutor made a point and Murdoch actually agreed to it several times, although he then backed away. But he actually did say on cross, uh, your your pill increase your drug addiction was actually increasing 
And I think, and he got Murdoch to agree with that. And then Murdoch, a couple of questions later, then kind of backed away. But I, I think what he was trying to establish, and I think he established it okay. I'm just hoping the the, the uh, jury remembers it uh, because the prosecutor is trying to point a picture of a guy, you know, who's had this long-term 10-year, 20-year uh, narcotic addiction, but the cycle is getting worse and worse and worse. So that after Paul gets into the boating accident, and things start to unravel. His wife was uh, they was consulting a divorce attorney, they believe, and that she'd gotten hired a forensic accountant to see where money was missing. And I think the prosecutor is trying to show that, you know, it wasn't he wasn't a level guy. He was actually spiraling downwards. His narcotic addiction was increasing and he was just decompensating to the point where he was getting desperate. I, I think it was effective a little bit, but I'm not sure that the jury will remember the, the fact that Murdoch actually agreed that his narcotic addiction was actually getting worse and worse and worse. Absolutely. Folks, if you're looking for a great defense attorney in the New York City metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. Joe Murray is a retired NYPD police officer and an outstanding defense attorney. You can reach Joe on his cell phone at 718 514 or you can email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. His website's jmurray-law.com. And folks, Joe Murray is a tremendous supporter of police off the cuff real crime stories. And we recommend him, any of you police officers out there, he's an outstanding represent, you know, attorney for police officers because he knows, he knows the inside and the outside of the job. So a great defense attorney, Joe Murray. So getting back to Murdoch now, it's, you know, I believe that his drug addiction, they're using that as, as a defense, obviously, mm -hmm. because, oh, he, he lies because he's a drug, you know, he's addicted to drugs. And he's fuzzy about, about details because he's addicted to drugs. Oh, and he steals money because he's addicted to drugs. So all these excuses, but... There's no excuse for blowing the head off of your son and and shooting your wife multiple times with a high-powered rifle. So all of those things are not going to excuse those two horrific crimes. Yeah, I, I think that um, the prosecutor, you know, you have to get past that that limit because people could understand nonviolent crimes, crimes of greed. You know, you have a drug addiction. People could understand that. Maybe people have family members that have had drug addictions in there and they might steal from them money, beg for money. Uh, and I think people are generally sympathetic in some ways to that and could understand that happening. Uh, but the prosecution's now asking them to uh, go across a bridge to, to not be, it's not just property crimes and stealing, however bad it is. And it is really terrible that he, the way he's, he was stealing from his clients, but to then say, He's he's done all these things. He's lied up to every living human being practically he's ever known. And he dealt with on a daily basis, every single member of his family. He's admitted to lying to, as you alluded to, um, at towards the end of the cross-examination. The prosecutor goes through each and every name and says, and you lied to this person too, didn't you? 
And he'd have to say yes. And he kept going and going. The list was like, you know, huge. Um, and then, you know, to get the jury to realize the guy is a, is a congenital liar. Okay. And so therefore the idea now that his new version of what he said happened that night is the truth. So, you know, and not a lie, you know, come on, ladies and gentlemen, use your common sense here. Look who we're dealing with. A man who lied and stole from people who were crippled, family members of people who died. He stole from his law firm. He stole from everyone and he lied to everyone. Don't you think he's lying to you right now? Um, and some people will go and go over that, cross that bridge. And some people may not be able to cross that bridge to say, I could understand stealing, but I don't think he would kill. The Paul was killed uh, with two sh uh, shotgun blasts, I think, to the chest and the head. No father could ever do that to their child. Sober, probably not. But he probably was actually under the influence of narcotic, and that may have made it easier to kill his wife. Just shoot her down with a with like a mini fourteen as she had a couple times in the chest, and then actually to shoot his son. I don't believe he was perfectly sane and sober when he did it. I think he was sick and desperate. And but you got to remember, the jury's got to be able to cross that bridge from, okay, I understand stealing. Um, and I think stealing could lead to a homicide. Maybe not be easy to do. We'll see. Yeah, I think, well, that's why the prosecutor was building the foundation mm -hmm. of lies, building the foundation of stealing, Billy, building the foundation of drug addiction, all of those things. But at the same time, the defense is using some of those things as, as a defense for him. Yeah, and sympathy. You know, well, one of the things that when we get right to it, also with the evidence, and if he did not, if he didn't do this crime, who did? And I thought it was a good question when the prosecutor said, "Did the dog seem raised up?" Yes, that was excellent. And he fell right into that trap. He said, "No, the dogs were fine." There's nobody but the there. The prosecutor was trying to say that, well. If you didn't do it, then someone else was around the property that didn't belong there that would raise up these dogs and the dogs would be agitated. But you say they didn't seem agitated, the dogs. And the timeline is so small. Right, right. right real small. Real so small. Who, who did it then, Mr. Right. Murdoch? And he fell for it. I think he said it like three times. Nope, dogs wasn't, weren't agitated. I was alone. There was nobody else. Nope, nobody on the property. He actually kind of rambled into it unexpectedly. And I guess he wasn't exactly, you know, he didn't quite understand perhaps the, 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 the uh, import of his words. Heather, whatever. Thank you so much for the 499 super chat. Very much appreciated. Melanie M. Thank you for the $5 super chat. I live in Charleston, South Carolina. It's word on the street. He was furious at Paul for the boat crash, bringing the House of Cards down on Alec. Yeah, I think that very much and very well could be the motive behind this. And then, of course, he was having marital difficulties. His wife was filing for divorce. 
and his wife was hiring a forensic accountant to show just how much money he was stealing. And then with his drug addiction, you know, of course the family knew about his drug addiction, which was crazy. Uh, Grace Green, thank you so much for the $25 super chat. Very much appreciated. Guys, you know, there's been a so much coverage on this case. And you get these cases that are really this interesting. And we, uh, Phil and I actually started covering this right after it happened. And, of course, day one, New York City cops right away, we said, he did it. Yeah, he did it. We said it day one. Yeah. Who else did it? He did it. You know, now they just got to collect the evidence. And there's a lot of things that we haven't heard. Now, Mike, some of the evidence, we hear of the evidence of gunshot residue on his hands, right? Uh, apparently some blood spatter on his shirt. We did Yes, there was a blue, like he had a blue jacket or something. I think it was, um, let me see my notes. Yeah, there was uh, a blue tarp and a blue rain jacket, some sort of rain jacket. Yeah, he denied um, ever see, he, he denied for, at first, but then he doubled back and said, uh, oh, I'm sorry, this was on direct examination by his own attorney. Uh, he he at first de denied, but then kind of doubled back and said, well, I'm not sure. I don't really remember ever seeing a blue tarp. And then he then uh, he was asked that his, his attorney then asked him, you know, do you remember owning like a blue rain jacket? And he denied ever owning a, a blue rain jacket, which would be kind of strange because that would mean that the possibly the killer left a rain jacket behind, you know, uh, just threw off a rain jacket, kind of strange, but he had to deal with that. Um, you know, it's like one of those things that he had to get up on the stand, admit to lying for a year and a half about being on the property. He's got, he's confronted with this blue, uh, blue tarp, uh, blue rain jacket, uh, like male size large. Okay. Cause he's like six foot three. Um, he, he's got to do the best he can. And the best he could do, I think, was what he did is to say, oh, I, no, I've never seen that before in my life. I have no idea where that came from. Uh, not me. Whether or not it will convince one person, not sure. But uh, I think he did the best he could under the most dire circumstances. This is the Hail Mary pass. Absolutely. And when, you know, when you see him testify, you watch a lot of the case. Um, yeah. Look, we always were a law, a former law enforcement. We see all of the guilt in his body language. We see all the guilt based on the way he answers questions. We are very surprised again. We'll, we'll repeat it that the, the latitude he gets in answering questions. Yeah. A New York prosecutor would never, ever allow that. They would be quick questions and yes and no answers. But to allow him to tell long, um, convoluted stories is really a risk for the prosecutor also. Yeah, he. Um, it was kind of interesting looking at the juxtaposition between the uh, defense attorney uh, asking him like, you know, kind of softball questions and allowing him to explain. And, and that's to be expected. You know, he's got a get his defendant to, uh, you know, with open-ended questions, allowing him to explain, 
explain yourself, explain this, explain that, knowing that when he sits down, now the 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 uh, I'm sorry, the direct examination of Murdoch took about six hours. Okay, so you're talking from like nine o'clock in the morning to like three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and then the prosecutor stands up. Now, the defense certainly knows the prosecutor's going to just have a field day with Murdoch. And so the prosecutor then gets up on and on the stand and starts uh, ripping apart Murdoch slowly, you know, as a, as a Southern gentleman would not, you know, going for the jugular immediately, building up over a long period of time, talking about long term uh, criminal conduct from stealing each and every time he stole money. That's a felony, you know, that sort of thing. Um, he does that. Then there's a break for a day. He comes back and he's doing it for like another. Uh, so he had like three hours that day, two hours that day. And he does it for like another, uh, like full day on the second day. Uh, Bernard was on cross, was cross-examined uh, probably twice as long as he was directly examined. Um, and uh, he did, he did, he did okay because he had to admit so much. Uh, and he was, he tried and he was given a lot of leeway. Um, but he, as you mentioned, when he, especially about the dogs, he dug himself into a hole a couple of times. He didn't help himself with, with his ramblings. Absolutely. Lou Lemoraco, thank you. So much for the $10 super chat. Actually, Phil Grimaldi is in the audience. All right, Hello, Phil. All, I think that Alec did well on the stand. <laughs> However, there is much more trial to go, and whatever gains he may have made, the prosecution can tie it uh, tie it up during summation. Absolutely. Uh, let me play a little bit of this to see some real talking heads here. Very own Gigi McKelvey and South Carolina attorney Joe McCullough share their observations from inside the courtroom as Murdoch took the stand for the second day. It's hard to tell. I mean, for the most part, it's very much poker face. And but you do see these little subtle things. I mean, for instance, yesterday, a lot of people have been talking about that passing of the tissue. I mean, is that just kind of like a, an instinct to do it? Or was it, hey, man, you're sobbing. I feel bad for you. Here's a tissue. It's hard to tell if they're buying it or not. You see frustration kind of come in waves across that jury, depending on the line of questioning. But as far as what they're thinking, man, I, I, I wish I could hop in their brains for a hot second for sure. Well, I think that the jury is going to take into account, and they'll certainly be reminded by the defense in closings, this is a fellow who came upon a family slaughtered, and he was not asked by the investigator, tell me in chronological order, in perfect order, what you did, when you did it, and exactly what you said. That's not the way things happen. Uh, police officers, as a matter of fact, when they're involved in the shooting, they get a 24-hour hi hi hiatus before they're interviewed about the shooting to give them time to collect their thoughts. So. Uh, kind of a different standard for witnesses or, or victims in crimes, people who come upon things. So I, I think the jury's not going to give much credence to that uh, quote-unquote problem. But I think what's happening in there now about when the big lie got invented and tightening this timeline and challenging military discipline, that's, that's going to help the prosecution. Interesting. Interesting. JJ, thank you for the 499 super sticker. You know, what he said what, what was true. However, also, what we got to realize, 
he was given leeway. He was interviewed in the in the police car with his lawyer sitting in the back mm -hmm. and not confronted head on. He was free to go. And that he wove a tale of lies right there. When we watch it, of course, he got very emotional. He was crying and everything. But, you know, this attorney's talking about how police get 24 hours. Well, he was afforded even more than that. Yeah. Because, and, you know, I question also, why would his attorney have allowed him at that point to speak to the police, even with him on the scene? Why would he let him do that? Yeah, um, he wasn't, uh, you know, the, the gentleman alluded to the police, you know, the police are actually the subject uh, who actually took the uh, deadly physical force in a deadly physical force situation. And so they're giving, they have to actually answer some questions about who, what, you know, where, when, and, you know, what happened, but then they will undergo a full investigation, uh, interrogation within 24 hours, you know, absolutely. But they're the ones who actually took deadly physical force. Here, Murdaugh, uh, is uh, is supposedly comes upon uh, this horrific scene, a terrible, tragic scene of his beloved wife and his beloved son slaughtered at the dog kennels. Uh, and I will probably, I, I, I would, I'd bet my paycheck that when the police first arrived at the scene, he was not thought of as any sort of um, defendant, any sort of criminal suspect. He was treated as a, as a husband and as a family member and they were asking him questions. They weren't trying to pin him down, uh, like, like you know, as to get him into a box. Is I love Phil's expression, you know, get him into a box. Now, they're not trying to do that. They're trying to get some sort of basic information to help them begin their investigation. His attorney's right there. He's not in custody like a Miranda situation, as you see, like on TV, you know, with that's where they put you in the, uh, the darkened room and they've got you handcuffed to a chair. No, he's there and he's, they're trying to get some basic information to try to understand the, you know, as they go forward from this moment, could you tell us where you were? When's the last time you talked to them? Do you know of anybody that might've expressed some sort of anger towards them? You know, that sort of basic thing. So, you know, he was treated as you would expect any ordinary uh, witness uh, and loved one. We've done this. We've interviewed people in radio cars. We've interviewed people in apartments. We've interviewed people in the station house. We've inter interviewed people out on the street. You're just trying to get some basic information. He was treated uh, with tremendous respect as the, as a, as a loved one uh, of two murder victims. I don't see how anybody could make any real hay over that at all. Absolutely. Someone asked in the chat, did he lawyer up? Is that why his lawyer was there? So confusing because of the setting. No, he did not lawyer up. Right. He he just was willing to answer questions, mm -hmm. probably because he thought he was smarter than everyone and he could withstand the interview uh, without making himself look foolish. But he lied. He lied his ass off with his attorney sitting in the back of the car. Right. And even you could see even one of the cops in the back, like, touched his arm to comfort him, like he was because he was so upset. But, you know, we all know about crocodile tears. And right. uh, that's what he it appears to me. He didn't know about at that moment when that that was being filmed. He had no idea about um, his son's uh, video, uh, video footage on his cell phone. 
And so he was telling a lie that he thought would would cover his tracks. And he had, you know, thought it up and uh, he spat it out. He, he had all the benefit of an attorney if he needed it. Uh, but he was he probably thought, look, you got to remember, too, you know, nothing occurs in a vacuum. Everything occurs in a context who he was on that date, you know, on the day of those homicides and how he felt about being interviewed by the police and what he thought he could get away with uh, comes from a certain perspective of a person who's been doing all kinds of lying and cheating and thieving and getting away with all kinds of crap that could have him disbarred, could have him in prison. He'd been doing that for over 20 years. This is no different. This is the highest stakes poker game he's ever been in, but he thought he had the skills. Absolutely. Tom Cusinelli, he's a lawyer and he didn't invoke the fifth. He thinks he can outsmart the police. He certainly does. Certainly did. And his lawyers let him do that. Folks, I just want to mention, we got like a celebrity cast in the chat tonight. We got Phil Grimaldi, we got Ed (laughs) Wallace, and we got Joe Murray. I'm going to put Joe Murray's comments on the screen. Prosecutors are usually not good at cross-examination because the defense usually does not put on very many witnesses because the defense has no burden to prove anything. That's true. Good point, Joe. Very good point. Very good point. Uh, Yeah. And Phil Grimaldi, he answered questions with his lawyer present. Right. But why would a lawyer even let you do that? I have a problem with that. The only thing I could think of, Bill, if I may, is that, that, you know, the lawyer didn't understand all the dynamics of what what was going on that night. Uh, Obviously, you know, the lawyer didn't know that, uh, you know, he committed, he may have committed these homicides. The lawyer uh, probably believed the story that he was spewing and probably, you know, because this happens very quickly. Um, they know each other for years. He gets called up. He's like, you know, I need you to come with me. You know, we got to talk. There probably was no real time. I'm guessing for a real deep consultation. Uh, he, he wanted to appear to be what, you know, uh, that, that grieving person. And I'm sure he was grieving, but he wanted to appear to be the grieving person who had nothing to do with this homicide and his attorney's there, the officer there, they're trying to comfort him. So the, 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 his attorney is in an uncomfortable position because he may, he's allowing uh, answers to questions that if he had time to consult with Murdoch, say for 24 hours, he never would have allowed to answer, but he, he right. Yeah, well, he really, what he, Mike, what he said in that car came back to bite him in the ass. Absolutely. He's paying for it. Yeah. Samuel Reed, I don't know why, what question you're asking. You hit it right on the head. I mean, if you're saying crocodile tears, it's because you're presuming he's guilty, which he is. But outside of that, I don't know where that comes from. Yeah, I do think he's he's guilty. And that's where the crocodile tears are. So I don't understand your question. I'm a little confused. I mean, you know, we talk about the term victimology. And in this case, you're going to, and I'm sure the police did this in this case, we talk about the Idaho four case, but here too, uh, if, if uh, Maggie is dead, we're going to go into Maggie's background. Did she owe money to anybody? Was she having an extramarital affair? Did she do something recently to uh, raise someone's ire 
what is going on in Maggie's life? What is going on in Paul's life? Um, we, we do know he's, he was in a lot of trouble at this point. Um, and you're doing that victimology study to see, you know, who could it have been? Probably those officers first on the scene and the first detectives and those questioning him in the car did not believe that he was going to be suspect number one. They're just trying to get some basic information so they can move forward. And so therefore, um, when you do these, when you look in, into a person's background, there was probably no one who would have the motive or the opportunity to kill Maggie or Paul and Maggie together at that particular time. How many people knew that they were out at this very deserted area late at night, you know, in the, in the evening when they got there? How many people in the family, how many people in the public? Almost nobody knew they were there except for a very small group of people, which was probably Mr. Murdaugh and maybe one other person. That's about it. Maybe Buster knew. That's it. You know, Mike, one of the things that we're already at an hour and 21 minutes, this is going to be the last um, point we're going to make. That is why cell phones, the little TikTok video he put up there, they're called timestamps. And that is why they are so important because they give timestamps. And that is what people try to use as alibis, time. Mm -hmm. And that's why prosecutors and police try to nail down specific times when they talk about the black box in cars, Mm -hmm. same type of thing. In every investigation in the 21st century, those things come into play. One of the things I'm surprised about is that this hunting lodge, this dog kennel facility had no video cameras. I'm a little bit surprised at that in this day and age. Yeah. Um, you would think that a, a gentleman with that much power, that much, you know, uh, money, that much property, and it's in a very isolated area where they did hunting for fowl and other things. And I think they also did fishing up there too. Um, you would think that they would have uh, an outdoor camera just facing uh, the from the house out to the property and then perhaps facing the front door, something, uh, a ring doorbell camera, something that's inexpensive. You would think, but, uh, you know, um, in a way, if we had that, that if there was that and it was, and it was, anything was caught on, on video, we wouldn't be sitting here talking to it. He would have pled guilty, but, um, in a way he's fortunate because it gives him the ability to weasel around, you know, that type of point, but not realizing that, uh, Paul had that, that video. I speak to my students in my evidence class every year. I talk to them about chronology, time, movement, who is, who is got, who is in an area that towards where the person is found dead, the victim is found dead. Who has the ability and the means to get to that person? Not everyone in the world, just a small group of people. That's your inner circle of people who are your uh, suspects. And on top of that, you layer uh, geofencing, phone uh, records, all that electronic data. Um, it makes it hard for people to uh, weasel out of uh, with it with some sort of crazy alibi like Mr. Mur- Murdoch is trying to do right now. Absolutely. Renee Ke- uh, Keanu, thank you for the 499 Super Chat. And can we say, if not him, who did it? 
Exactly. If it were about the boat wreck, wouldn't they shoot him too while he was at the kennels? Good point. That's a very good point. I mean, I think that the boat wreck, you know, there was a big lawsuit. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't see them killing the mother over that. No. You know, if they were going to kill someone, yeah, they might kill Paul. Mm -hmm. He was intoxicated and caused the death of a 19-year-old girl uh, by the name of Mallory Beach. So I don't see that as a, a viable uh, suspect, someone that was involved in the boat wreck. I don't see that. Yeah. No, no. It's, you know, if Paul liked to have a lot of late nights out, if you if you did want to uh, kill Paul, um, there was a lot of late nights he'd be out. You could follow him around. You know, the idea that you would take Paul out right in front of his mother and then have to shoot the mother too, uh, a mother that uh, seemed to be very generous and maybe overly generous to Paul and his friends, there would be no motive to, to kill her too. That would be the most, the dumbest way to take Paul out in front of a witness that you have to take out also. You know, Mike, before we uh, give you last thoughts, Joe Murray's uh, putting his two cents in again. Oh, good. Uh, Renee Keanu, that is not a proper question for a criminal jury. The judge, defense, and prosecutor will all point out to the jury that the prosecution has the exclusive burden of proof that he mm -hmm. did it. That's right. Very well spoken, Joe. You That's should right. be a professor. You should be a professor also. <laughs> you know, I just at this point, I just want to thank all of our channel members, all of our folks, our Patreon members, all you, all you folks that listen to us and support this show. I want to thank you so much. Uh, this is a really, really interesting uh, case. We'll see what happens when it goes to the jury. Mike, final words. Final words. Um, I think they, it, this is a great demonstration of, of a fan. As I say, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And this is a dynasty that has fallen all because of one, one person's, I don't know, drug addiction. And, you know, drug, drug addiction and drug crimes aren't property crimes. They can, they can lead to violent crimes. People who get desperate and who are high can commit all kinds of atrocities. Billy, you know that. I know that. Phil knows that. And this is one of those cases, clearly. Absolutely. You know, I just want to say one thing, and I said it before, and I don't want to say I told you so, because it's easy for us to sit in these chairs and make predictions. But when this first happened on June, it was what was it, June of uh, 2021, I have the exact date, June 7th, 2021. That day, Phil Grimaldi and I said, he did it. He killed the wife and the son. He did it. I mean, okay, easy for two New York City cops sitting a thousand miles away. But just instinctively, we said, who else could have done it? He right. killed them. And when we heard the 911 call, oh, my wife and, and son are shot very badly. That's the language he used. They're shot very badly. And nobody talks like that. No, no one talks like that. And so we were like, well, they should just wait there. They'll put cuffs on you because you're the one that did it, you know, and uh, I still feel that way to this day. Folks, I want to thank everyone for tuning in tonight. I hope you found the show interesting. Uh, Mike Geary was uh, dying to show his uh, his lawyer, <laughs> his lawyer credentials. Yeah, he loves this stuff. And uh, folks, thanks for tuning in. Have a great day and God bless. Take care. One episode, just ain't enough